0: Gospel of Luke series, Um, this is uh, about the, this is the eighth sermon actually in the series, Searching for the Son, as you would have heard uh, in the Bible reading, Um, Jesus, his parents in Jerusalem, a slight mishap happened. We're going to hear more about that shortly. Let's pray, dear Father. Um, <clears throat> I just ask for your blessing and, and, and grace and leading. Now, uh, I ask again, Lord, that you would uh, that you would keep this space uh, free of distraction and. Help our minds and hearts to be fixed upon your word, which brings uh, eternal life. And so help us, we pray. Help me, Lord, uh, to have clarity of mind and speech to be, to be helpful. Uh, but we know, Lord, that ultimately your word does the work, your word and your Holy Spirit. So work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our passage last week ended by saying this about baby Jesus. The child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favour of God was upon him. Today we're going to get a slight glimpse into the early years of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. Have a look from verse 41. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now, you'll remember from last week that uh, the the parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, followed the law of God. They followed the the Jewish customs of the day. Uh, They circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. Mary followed the purification laws after childbirth. Uh, they committed Jesus, their firstborn, to the service of God, of, of the Lord. Um, and Mary, Mary, and Joseph did what was right in the eyes of God, and therefore they did what was right for their son as well. And here again, we see them being obedient to God, heading back down to Jerusalem uh, from Nazareth to celebrate the feast of the Passover. Do you remember what the Passover is? The Exodus 12, you can, you can read about that. But a quick summary. The Passover is the most significant event in the early years of Israel. Uh, you'll remember that the, the nation becomes slaves in Egypt, to Egypt. Um, so the Lord sent Moses, He chose and sent Moses the, uh, to the ruler of Egypt to demand uh, that He release the Israelite slaves. And each time... Moses went, Pharaoh denied the request. And so each time the Lord sent some sort of plague to sort of break Pharaoh's heart, soften him, so that he would release the people. But Pharaoh would not release the slaves until the last plague. Uh, And this plague was going to bring the death of every firstborn uh, child uh, in, in every household, whether it was in Pharaoh's house or whether it was a slave girl. Uh, and even the firstborn of the cattle, of the livestock. Death and disaster is, is heading for everybody who, is gonna, who disobeys the Lord. And to escape this plague, you had to trust in the Lord. And as a sign of that trust, uh, you had to select a year-old lamb or goat, or kid, not kid, kid, you know, one-year-old goat child, <laughs> <laughs> not child, not kid. You know what I mean, right? I should have just stuck to lamb. Um, but you could select a goat if you wanted. Slaughter it, put some blood over the doorposts and over the lintel, you know, up and around your, your door of your house. And when the Lord sent the plague of death through that area, he would pass over the houses who were showing that, that trust, right, that, by putting the blood on the, over the doorpost. Uh, he'd pass over those... Houses, if it had the sign of the blood, if it was covered by the, the blood, right? Um, if the house was covered with this blood, the death would not occur. But to all the rest, their firstborn would die. The Lord also instructed the Israelites to roast the lamb and eat it with unleavened bread, bread without yeast and bitter herbs. And they did all this, right? And, and everything that the Lord said would happen, it happened. The plague of death came through, Pharaoh uh, ended up releasing the slaves and and they fled the land of Egypt because of the mighty work of God. And it was the blood of the lamb that saved them from death and it was the power of the Lord that released them from slavery. Um, And basically from this point on the Lord told Israel to keep that Passover festival yearly, remember the time. Remember when you are set free by the blood of the Lamb. Remember when you are released from slavery. Do it. Do it yearly. It's good. Uh, you don't want to forget the grace and the saving power of the Lord, in other words. Right? This is extremely significant. Um, and not just for Israel then, but for even right now as Mary and Joseph make their way down... Uh, from Nazareth to Jerusalem to commemorate this Passover. Just have a look at verse 42 there. It says, When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom, up the hills of Jerusalem, that is. So in, in Jewish culture, uh, the, at the age of 13, a boy was considered to be a man, pretty much. And, you know, as I look around Australia, at some <laughs> 12 and 13-year-old boys, I, I scratch my head and, um, our culture is quite different there, isn't it? But um, at this age, the, the, this, a boy uh, would go through the, the bar mitzvah ceremony. Right, The boy would become a bar mitzvah, which means son of the commandment. And at this point, the, the boy, who is now a man, um, would become personally responsible for all these actions and, and he would be commit to following the law of Moses basically and it's the time when he'd take on all this religious duty and responsibility for himself and this ceremony would take place at the temple and now it wasn't uncommon for, for them to take a, a boy a year or two early um, you know here 13 was the age of that bar mitzvah but here Jesus is 12 and you know they, they would take them up a year or two early to sort of, as a trial run, you know, a bit of a practice run to see the, the get familiar with the processes of the temple and learn, you know, how the rabbis teach and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that's very likely what's happening here with Jesus at 12 years old. Have you ever lost something of great value? Mary and Joseph have. Have a look at verse 43 to 45. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among uh, their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. It's now the end of that seven day Passover feast and everyone's heading back home and obviously there's no maxi taxis available, right? Um, so they they walk in a large group of people, you know, family, friends, acquaintances. That's that's how they travel. Uh, a bit of a safety feature really. And often it was the, the women and the young children at the front and then the men and the older uh, children at the back. So. In this case, Jesus is probably assumed to be somewhere in, in the middle of, the, of that pack there, um, of, the, of the group. Some translations will say caravan, um, which just, you know, means the same group of people. Uh, and then they walk for a whole day's journey, they realise Jesus isn't with them. Oh dear. You, you can only imagine the stress, right? We know from verse forty-three that Jesus is fine, but but they don't. They got no idea, no idea where he is. And um, you know, as I read this passage, as I sit in that and think about putting myself in their position, I'm feeling for them, like big time. Where is my son? Where's he gone? You know, he's missing. He's gone. There's nowhere to be found. Um, They've misplaced the Messiah right? This is, this is a big deal. Um, I mean, I've lost my car keys for, for, before, and, you know, that was pretty stressful, but um, to lose the Christ, uh, that's big, right? You can imagine the weight of it. Mary and Joseph are stressed to the max, and, and they decide to make the most important U-turn in history, basically, and head back to Jerusalem. And thankfully, they find Jesus. Look at verse 46 to 48. It says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Twelve-year-old Jesus stayed at the temple to sit, listen and ask questions of the rabbis. Uh, And he blew their minds. He, He was blowing their minds. I'll tell you folks, there's something different about Jesus. There is something different about Jesus, utterly different. I mean, my kids ask some pretty good theological questions, I think. I'm a bit of a proud pastor daddy at that point. They grapple with heavy theological stuff like the Trinity and the eternality of God and all that stuff. Um, for what it's worth, it usually happens at bedtime. <laughs> and I'm not overly surprised, but if there's any excuse to get out of sleep, you know, ask me something theological and we'll, we'll talk it out for as long as I think we need to. But 12 year old Jesus has amazed everybody around him, including his parents. Um, They're astonished at what's taking place. They're amazed. And this is typical of Jesus, right? Isn't this typical? He amazes people constantly. He constantly is is the focal point of astonishment and marveling and wonder. And it's going to continue to be this way for the rest of his life. Matthew chapter 7, 28, Jesus was preaching. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. Matthew 13, 54, Jesus taught in their synagogues and they ended up astonished at his teaching. Matthew 19, 25, Jesus was teaching about how to enter heaven and when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Matthew twenty-two, thirty-three. Jesus is teaching about the resurrection. Uh, the crowd heard it and they were astonished at his teaching. I'm reading scripture here. This is, I'm not just adding this in. All these, these are quotes from all these parts here. Matthew 12, 23, Jesus healed a demon-possessed man and all the people were amazed. Mark 2.12, Jesus healed the paralytic, and they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Mark 5.42, Jesus brings a little girl back to life, and immediately the little girl gets up and begins walking, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Mark 6.51, Jesus walks on water, he gets into the boat with the disciples, and the As soon as he does, the strong winds cease immediately and they were utterly astounded. Mark 7.37, Jesus heals a deaf man and they were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. And I could go on and on and on. Whatever he does... He does it well, to say the least. And wherever Jesus is, there should be astonishment, right? There should be amazement. I don't know about you, but the further we go into this book, the more it is reeling me in. The more I'm seeing Christ, the more amazed and astonished I am just sitting in passages just like this. I hope you are too. I hope you are. Back at the temple, the teachers are amazed, his parents are astonished, but they also don't sound too happy here, Right? There's almost a, a hint of rebuke in here, almost. Um, his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us in this way? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress fair question i think you know from parent to child where have you been why i'd be asking the same thing because you know that does cause great distress but jesus is exactly where he's meant to be exactly where he's meant to be in the father's house look at verse 49 he said to him why were you looking for me did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is an amazing sentence right here. right? This is an astonishing sentence. Because in the Gospel of Luke, these are the first Uh, recorded words of Jesus. And the next time we'll hear from Jesus, he'll be 30-something years old. In the Gospel of Luke, this is what we have. These are the only words in those first 30 years of Jesus. I think he wants us to take note of what he's saying here. These words are very significant. Do you not know that I must be in my Father's house. And they're significant because these words speak right into the heart of who Jesus truly is. He's the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, is in his Father's house, the temple. Some translations say, "Do do you not know I must be about my Father's business? Okay, and the reason for that is the the construction of the Greek here is a little tricky to render out in in English. Um, But with either, either translation, the main point is clear. At 12 years old, Jesus understood his identity, he knew who he was and what he had to do. That's why he was in his father's house. At 12 years old, Jesus knows. He's the Son of God and he knows that it's good and right to prioritise his Father in heaven and do the work of his Father. He knows it. He knows it for sure. Jesus is the Son of God. This is the core of Christianity. And it's a claim that divides the world, right? Doesn't it? Might have even divided your own family. Might have divided friendships. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is many things to many people, right? There are many religious groups. He's a good teacher, a wise man, a miracle worker, a prophet, a holy man, an enlightened man, a moral teacher, a perfect man, a for a a, a, a fake, a phony, a fraud, a lunatic, a liar, a blasphemous, demon-possessed man. Many thoughts about Jesus this is the reality this is the reality many people think many things about Jesus but the clear teaching of the Bible the truth is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who chose to enter into human history that's the truth that's the truth if he's anything else we're wasting our time if he's anything else We don't have a Saviour. But he is, and we do. We've been speaking about this for weeks now. That Luke really hammers home the the early the infancy of of Jesus and who he is, his identity. It's divine, it's it's pointed out. And today we have it the twelve year old Jesus declares that God is his father, he is in his father's house. This would be an ongoing claim throughout his life. And it's this claim that becomes the very reason why the Jews would have him killed upon a cross. In John chapter 10, Jesus says to the Jews, do you say that I am blaspheming because I said that I'm the son of God? Now in Jewish thought, Jesus claim to be the son of God uh, is to say that he's perfectly equal with God the Father. Um, All the same privileges, all the same rights and ability and power. But to them, it's blasphemy. And blasphemy is punishable by death. Listen to Mark chapter 14. Just a few verses here. Jesus is on trial. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Deserving death for claiming that he is the Son of God. Jesus claims to be the Son of God and... God the Father confirms that as well, right? Very, very clearly. You'll you'll be familiar with these. Matthew 3.17, Mark 1.11, Luke 3.22. We've got this threefold testimony of God the Father um, proclaiming at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Again and again and again in those Gospels. And again, in those synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have a threefold testimony on the, mount, on, the, <clears throat> on the mountain, right? The Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain, Elijah and Moses appear, and there God the Father again declares from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus declares to be the Son of God, God the Father declares it, and the disciples declare it too. When they are out on that boat, like we mentioned before in the bad storm, Jesus comes walking on the water, freaked them out. Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord if it is you command me to, to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. That's just one example. Jesus declares it, God the Father declares it, the disciples do. John the Baptist did. He did as well. One day he saw Jesus walking towards him and cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he bears this testimony about Jesus saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. A centurion present at the crucifixion of Jesus. When Jesus was crucified, the veil of the temple was torn in two, darkness, earthquakes, tombs opened up, all sorts of stuff. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Multiple times, the demons cry out in fear, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In fact, Mark The gospel writer Mark tells us that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And of course, Satan himself, when he was tempting Jesus to sin, used the title Son of God as a taunt. But as we can clearly see, Jesus truly is the Son of God. And there's many other places we could go to to bolster that claim as well. Um, The Gospel of John, read that. Please read that. Um, it, it, It was written, "...so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name." That's in chapter 20. John wrote that himself. This is the reason why I'm writing. "...so that you would know Jesus is the Son of God." That's a big gospel, right? To make this point, Jesus is the Son of God and that's where you can find eternal life. And it is Jesus, the Son of God, who said to his parents, Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Being in the Father's house and going about the Father's business isn't an optional extra for Jesus. Jesus. This is something he must do. It is necessary for him to do. Here's a couple of other absolute necessities according to Jesus. These are the words of Jesus himself. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And after his resurrection Jesus said These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled He must preach the gospel he must suffer and die he must everything must be fulfilled in Christ It was absolutely necessary for Jesus to do the father's work absolutely necessary to preach, to suffer, to die, to rise. And it was necessary for everything to be fulfilled in Jesus. Everything in the scriptures. Why? To honour his father and to make it possible for people like you and me to be forgiven of our sins. And to receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus, the perfect son of God, was perfectly submissive to the Father's will, and therefore he was submissive to his own earthly parents too. Look at verse 51 and 52. He went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. Some have claimed that Jesus sinned by staying back in Jerusalem, but that's rubbish. I'll just say it straight up. Um, It was necessary for him to be there so that he could grow in knowledge and in wisdom. uh, So that he could grow in favour with God and man, so that he could be strengthened in every way because every single day was one step closer to the cross. He had to be prepared to to take on the cross for you and me. He had to grow in that wisdom. And 20 years or so later, Jesus, the Son of God, would be arrested and crucified. Before he was arrested, he was praying to his father, The Mount of Olives saying this, "'If you are willing, remove this cup from me.'" Thinking about the cross, the atonement. "'Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. "'Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done.'" Jesus lived in perfect submission. the writer of Hebrews says this about him about that moment in the days of his flesh Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus had to be in his father's house. He had to grow in knowledge and wisdom and and grace and strength to take on the cross so that he would become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Everything Jesus has done was necessary so that he could become that source of eternal salvation we obey Him because He is the authoritative Son of God. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Him. How does someone obey Him to have eternal life? Well, you think about the first words of His ministry in the Gospel of Mark, Repent and believe in the Gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Follow Jesus' command to turn from sin and trust in him alone for salvation, not your good works. Forget that. It ain't going to work. It just won't. You need the Son of God who took our place on the cross for our sin. He's paid our debt. Will you trust in him? He's paid our debt. Will... Will you turn from sin and put your trust in Christ? You must, because He and He alone is the source of eternal salvation. Nowhere else, no one else. Forget it. Go to Jesus, go to Him alone. Let's pray. Father, your, your word is rich. Your Son is precious. And we proclaim that He is the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God, the source of eternal salvation. Lord, I confess and, and, and all those who are trusting in Christ confess that there's nothing we can do to earn salvation but he has done it for us and we praise your holy name for that. We give thanks to you for that. Cause us to live for you, Lord Jesus. Help us to let go of this world and to live with you And for you, wholeheartedly, forever and ever and ever. Amen.